0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll preview two events celebrating our history and culture, the symposium, Florida State of the Humanities, and the second annual Florida Frontiers
1: Festival. It's an exciting, diverse state that we don't all know as much about as we perhaps should.
0: We'll discuss 3D images from the late
2: 1800s and early 1900s. It gives the perception of a three dimensional image. So, if you can imagine in the late 19th century, this was revolutionary. You know, here you could be sitting in your living room and be looking at the St. John's River here in Florida.
0: And we'll talk about the legacy of Florida Governor Reuben Askew. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
3: Florida, you'll always be my home Forever in my heart, no matter where I go From the deep blue Atlantic to the Gulf of Mexico Florida, you'll always be my home
0: You can immerse yourself in Florida history and culture at the symposium Florida State of the Humanities being held Friday, October 20th from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on the campus of Daytona State College. The symposium includes presentations on Ponce de Leon's Fountain of Youth, Florida's East Coast Railway, the Highwaymen artists, and much more. Gary Monroe is professor of visual art at Daytona State College and author of books including The Highwayman, Florida's African American Landscape Painters, and Life in South Beach. Monroe organized
1: the Florida Symposium. I'm a non-commercial photographer. My, arts, my background's in the fine arts. I'm really a photographer, and Florida's been my primary subject, Florida, Haiti, and other places, too. And the, the, my interest in researching and writing about Florida culture, primarily uh, in the visual arts stems from my interest in what's called outsider art non-trained artists but being a native floridian loving everything about the state um i just started to explore that those different um, avenues that that interest led to and hence you know 10 books later here we are and I, I, I always go to lectures and caught yours and caught all the people on this programs and i just think they're the best of the best in florida and i was really proud that nobody turned us down <laughs> but it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be an exciting uh
0: day John Brady is Director of Planning and Professional Development at Daytona State College. He says that the Florida Symposium is being held in a beautiful
4: facility on campus. It's our Maury uh, College of Hospitality and Management. It's a uh, building 1200 on our campus. When you walk in, you'll feel like you're in a five-star resort. It's a beautiful fountain, Um uh, we're actually building a brand-new beverage science building or program within the building, so we're going to be um, brewing some beer within the building. You'll be able to see that happening as you come into the, the building. Yeah, it's, it's gorgeous. You feel like you're maybe down on, on South Beach at the Sheridan somewhere.
0: The Florida Symposium opens with a presentation from Steve Seibert, director of the
1: Florida Humanities Council. I recently appointed director of the Florida Humanities Council, and I heard him speak at the Florida Book Awards in Tallahassee a few months ago, and he's charming and um, had something to say. So I asked if he would make the opening remarks and follow that by a formal presentation. He's going to be talking about um, the humanities in the workplace, which I think is extremely topical and uh, of great interest. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing him here and opening up the, uh, the day.
0: Presenter Rick Kilby may be best known as editor of the Orange County Regional History Center's Reflections magazine and is author of the book, Finding the Fountain of
1: Youth. Gary Monroe. Rick's a graphic designer with a fascination of all things Florida. He runs um, his own blog, and he's been fascinated with um, Florida Springs, specifically um, Ponce de Leon. And it turns out that there are about 20-plus fountains of youth in Florida. Of course, none of them are. Are actual, but if he's done this wonderful research and published a book through the University Press um, that documents his, um, his studies and findings. It's a lot of fun, too.
0: I'll be doing a presentation at the Florida Symposium called The Complete History of Florida in Less Than an
1: Hour. I caught your talk at um, WMFA, Orlando's FM affiliate, discussing Florida in less than one hour, um, and every second was precious, and I was at the edge of my seat, and I was glad that you accepted the invitation to come and do it here again on the 20th.
0: James Pearson is director of the Southeast Museum of Photography, a highlight of the Daytona State campus.
1: Gary Monroe. James is um, a relatively new director of the Southeast Museum of Photography. The museum is one of um, about six in the country that deal exclusively with photography. Um, It's just an incredible resource for this region and the state and it attracts visitors from around the state country and even internationally. Um, The the roster of um, exhibitors is stunning uh, international photography um, and and, and local photography too in a gorgeous um, new building and James is um, a breath of fresh air. He's um, coming with a very diverse background in the fine arts and um, he's got his challenges and he's rising to them. He's going to make a few comments about the the nature of the museum and its direction under his, his tutelage.
0: After Pearson's presentation, Florida Symposium attendees will have lunch and be free to walk through the Southeast Museum of Photography. The afternoon presentations begin with Jean Ellen Wilson and her talk, Estes Wright, Standing Up for Justice in Jim Crow, Florida.
1: Jean Ellen is a friend of mine. She helped me when I was writing my Highwaymen books, which takes place largely in Fort Pierce, and she's the um, folk historian in Fort Pierce. And we've become good friends over the years. And during our conversation, she was telling me about um, Estes Wright, a black man in the 1930s who came to the rescue of another black man who was being um, uh, roughed up by police after a fender bender. Longst- well, I'm not going to spill the beans because that's Gene job. But she did the groundbreaking research. And I think um, the story of Estes Wright is right up there with any other civil rights martyr. But up until she makes this presentation, um, unknown. So I'm, I'm. this is like a groundbreaking presentation. So I'm glad that she's making the trek I'm from Fort Pierce.
0: Presenter Kathy Celestry is author of the book Backroads of Paradise, A Journey to Rediscover Old Florida.
1: Kathy um, took the 1932 WPA Guide to Florida and retraced the um, journeys that that book is based on. So I gave a contemporary spin to that um those back road travels, and she's a very colorful speaker also. It's one of those books, I think anybody that knows Florida knows the book, and I travel all the time around Florida, and I always take the book and throw it in the seat next to me. It's just so much fun to um, to learn the history from that era, that vantage point, and and her vantage point is just a very fresh take on it all.
0: Collector and author Seth Bramson is giving a presentation on the Florida East Coast Railway at the Florida Symposium.
1: Gary Monroe. Seth is very colorful. Seth is... um the premier collector of um, Miami's material culture, but he's also um, a Florida East Coast Railway um, historian. He's the aficionado, and he's a very, very lively, powerful speaker, and I'm glad he's making the drive up from Miami for that.
0: Concluding the Florida Symposium will be the presentation, Florida and Water by John Moran.
1: He's a real crowd pleaser, too. I've heard John speak a few times. He's um, a landscape photographer, Florida landscapes, And he, like many other new era photographers, call themselves conservation photographers because they're motivated not just by pretty pictures of Florida sunsets and alligators, but by using that work to raise consciousness and therefore action. And he's going to be talking, and I caught this talk a few months ago, very um, passionately and dramatically about the um, beauty and problems facing our natural springs. Throughout the
0: day, Florida Symposium attendees will be able to enjoy a display of highwayman paintings and an exhibit of artwork by Carlos Betancourt. Gary Monroe.
1: Carlos is a a very well-known artist out of Miami and also a friend, um, and he agreed to um, show his work at the um, Southeast Museum of Photography. So it'll be a new exhibition that he and and James have curated. Um, And Lisa Stone of Lisa Stone Arts here in Ormond Beach is going to be bringing a dozen vintage highwayman paintings that will be on display throughout the, um, the day, too.
0: John Brady from Daytona State College believes that the Florida Symposium will expose the public to the best of what the college has to offer.
4: The folks that are visiting the campus for the first time will realize the resources that we offer, not only Daytona State College uh, students and staff and faculty, but also the greater community, and, such as the Southeast Museum of Photography, um, Cafe 101, which is our uh, student-operated uh, restaurant that's, that's run through the hospitality and culinary department, um, and all these other resources on campus, and come back and visit us even after the symposium is over.
0: Florida Symposium organizer Gary Monroe hopes that the event will make Florida history and culture accessible to the general public.
1: It's an exciting, diverse date that we don't all know as much about as we perhaps should. And as much as I admire, um, our scholarly friends, I wanted this to be um, consumer-friendly. So these people, although they are wonderful researchers and writers, um, they also have a way with people. Because again, I've attended all of their talks before and I've always been delighted. So it should be just a lot of fun and very, very informative.
0: The Symposium Florida State of the Humanities will be held Friday, October 20th from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on the campus of Daytona State College in Daytona Beach.
3: Gulf of Mexico, Florida, you'll always be my home. Oh, Florida, you'll always be my home.
0: That was singer-songwriter Chris Call, one of the performers at the second annual Florida Frontiers Festival, being held Saturday, October 21st from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. on the grounds of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. The event features a day full of Florida music, highwayman artist demonstrations, vendors, food, kids' activities, and a beer garden. Advance tickets are $15 for adults. Children under 12 are free with a paid adult. Admission to the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science is included. Headlining the event is the Willie Green Blues Band. Willie Green has opened for Robert Cray, Eric Clapton, B.B. King, and others. He received the 2017 Florida Folk Heritage Award.
5: Got my mojo oh, working, buddy. just with Got my mojo won't my mood, waking, won't.
0: legendary florida folk musician frank thomas will also be performing at the second annual florida frontiers festival thomas writes and performs songs about the history people and places of florida Songs such as Cracker Cowman, The Flatwoods of Home, and Spanish Gold have earned him a loyal following. In 2013, Frank Thomas was inducted into the Florida Artists Hall of Fame. His Florida roots run deep.
5: The Thomas side of the family came into Florida in 1820, and he married a girl who was born in St. Augustine in 1805, and her parents had, was well established there they'd been there about 20 years, so I'm thinking you know that had to be late 18 1780s or early 1790s anyway uh, but I don't know what her maiden name was either I, I, I really if I could find that, I could uh, find out more you know about it but they they raised children and uh, there's Thomases scattered all over the place.
0: Members of the Thomas family experienced a lot of Florida history.
5: Longevity seems to run in my family. My daddy was born in 1882. Now, he grew up in a whole different era and environment. Now, you think about that, I was born in 43, and he was 61, I think, when I was born. Now, and my mother was almost 50. Well, you know, his his daddy, I think, died at a fairly early age. I think a one-eyed mule kicked him in the head, and that's what killed him. But then my great granddaddy, who uh, was singing about in that song about the uh, flatwoods of home, fought in the in the Great War, Northern aggression, and fought in the Seminole Indian Wars. Was at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend and some of that stuff. And then he uh, they they go on back before him.
0: A songbook featuring more than eighty of Frank Thomas's songs about Florida has just been published and will be available at the event. Also performing at the second annual Florida Frontiers Festival along with the Willie Green Blues Band and Frank Thomas are the Native Rhythms Festival Ensemble, heritage musician Bob Lusk, acoustic rocker Mike Garcia, and singer-songwriter Chris Call. Tickets for the event are available at floridafrontiersfestival.com. VIP packages are also available that include complimentary beer, wine, and food, reserve seating, and other amenities. The second annual Florida Frontiers Festival will be held Saturday, October 21st from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. on the grounds of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa.
5: He's from a breed that has died, but he has survived in the world he once knew is gone. He's an old cracker cowman, existing a long way from home.
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, watch archived episodes of our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in COCO. Ben, you have here some unique historic photographs from the collection.
2: Yeah, that's right. What we're looking at today are called stereo views or stereograms. And it's essentially a small, thin piece of cardboard. They measure about seven inches by three and a half, four inches wide. And pasted on that piece of cardboard are what looks like two identical images, two print images side by side. And when you first look at it, it it, it might seem like an error, uh, right? And and it's uh, a little bit difficult to understand what the point is. But the stereo views were very popular, really going back to the beginnings of photography in the mid-19th century. Uh, Originally, they were produced on glass plate or wet plate uh, negatives. And then later on in the late 19th century, uh, they were printed on more commercially available dry plates and became readily available. Available throughout uh, the country and, and throughout the world. But the stereo views themselves utilize a interesting phenomenon known as stereoscopy. And this is the phenomenon that simulates how the human eye uses binocular vision. And what that means essentially is that our eyes are spaced about two and a half inches apart. And when we look at a single image, it appears, or at least the brain translates that into a three-dimensional image in our brain. Well, the stereo view essentially does the same thing. It takes two two-dimensional images that were taken with a stereo view camera, and those two images, when placed inside of a stereo viewer at a distance uh, roughly a few inches away from the face, it gives the perception of a three-dimensional image. So if you can imagine in the late 19th century, this was revolutionary. You know, here you could be sitting in your living room and be looking at or feel like you were standing in the middle of, of London or in the St. John's River here in Florida. So they were, became increasingly popular. And photographers in large studios began producing these stereo views en masse. And they came out in a number of different series. So, uh, for instance, tourists who were visiting, say, St. Augustine or Pensacola could purchase a book of stereo views, bring them home, uh, and then that could be a, a popular uh, fireside conversation piece for all of your fellow visitors who maybe hadn't visited Florida before they could kind of transform them uh, themselves into into that space. Now these special cameras, it's kind of interesting, they actually required two separate lenses. So the stereo camera itself was, was unique and really was a fascinating invention. The lenses themselves would have been placed about two and a half inches apart, roughly the same distance that our eyes are spread apart, and it would take two separate exposures of the exact same thing. So it would capture the same instant, but if you look at the stereo views, they're slightly off. You might see that uh, one side was a little bit overexposed, a little bit underexposed, but again when you place that into the stereo viewer, it gives the illusion of a three-dimensional image. So along with the actual stereo view, in order to get that three-dimensional effect, it required a stereoscope which is a small handheld device. It has a holder at the end, and essentially you would place the stereo into that holder Place your eyes through these small lenses, almost like you were looking through binoculars. And uh, what that would do, would it would shade out any peripheral vision. You know, so if you stare at a stereo view right now, like we we're looking at, it doesn't look like it's three-dimensional. But if we were to block out any of our peripheral vision, place it inside of the stereo view, which is a uh, distance just far enough away from our eyes, about six inches apart, uh, stare at it again, focus as if we were looking through a pair of binoculars, it gives the illusion again of that three-dimensional image.
0: What did people take pictures of in these uh, stereo view images?
2: Most of these images, as I said before, were kind of touristy in nature. Uh, You can think of them as the precursors to a postcard, uh, so to speak. This is one of the largest single sets of images we have are from the city of St. Augustine, which of course was a popular tourist destination in the late 19th and early 20th century, not only for wealthy visitors, but for anyone who really wanted to experience a little taste of the South. I mean, for many people, Jacksonville, St. Augustine, Northeast Florida kind of represented the end of the world, especially before the advent of the East Coast. Coast Railroad, Uh, many people kind of came down that far south, may have ventured a little bit further in, taken a steamboat up one of the river systems, and that's kind of what we get. You know, when you look at a set of stereo views, you'll get an idea of what a tourist would have experienced, say, in 1890. Uh, Looking at one here of Treasury Street in St. Augustine, we have a number of, of photographs of Bay Street. Of course, photographs of the, uh, the fort, the Castillo de San Marcos. And then we have some great images of steamboats that are traveling up the Ocklawaha River, the St. John's River, uh, the Suwannee River, all of these kind of famous waterways. But again, it gives you an idea of what someone would have experienced had they bought that ticket to come down to Florida.
0: Well, it seems you also have a good number of images from the African-American community.
2: Yeah, that's right. So outside of your what we would commonly think of as the touristy activities in the late 19th century, visiting these uh, old buildings, uh, hunting and fishing, the second largest subset of images deal with as you said, African Americans, which is a, a little bit perplexing when you think about it. But the nature of these images of course kind of depict this stereotypical notion of the poor downtrodden, you know, ex-slave who's living in the in the Jim Crow South, and I think that's an idea that many northerners kind of bought into. So when they came to Florida, they wanted these pictures that represented what they saw. Here we're looking at an image of uh, what looks like an elderly man in a box cart towed by an oxen. We have several images of these ramshackle uh, cabins with uh, people out front. Here we see some laundry that's lined out out front. Looks like a small subsistence farm. And some of the titles too, you know, gives you an idea of kind of what they thought. Here is a woman, it looks like she has a, a young woman bent over her knee and it says, quote, Aunt Venus hunting for Florida fleas, unquote. So, you know, they they were almost kitschy in nature, you know, but but again, it gives us a view into, uh, somewhat at least, into the life of African Americans in Florida. So, you know, again, if you can put yourself in the shoes of, uh, say, a wealthy northerner coming to Florida and just kind of think about what they saw, these collections of images, I think, do justice to what that trip would have been like. Great. Interesting. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure, thank you.
0: Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. This is Florida Frontiers. Reuben Askew is considered by many to be one of Florida's best governors. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more.
6: Reuben Askew was originally born in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and moved to Florida with his mom after their father had left him. He was an alcoholic, itinerant carpenter during the Depression, so she brought uh, the kids down to Pensacola, and he grew up in, in Florida. Went to Florida State, uh, got a law degree, served in the Army, became an attorney in Pensacola, and then, and then later on ran for the State House and, and, and the State Senate, and eventually became President of the Senate by 1969.
7: That was Dr. Gordon Harvey, author of The Politics of Trust, Reuben Askew in Florida, in the 1970s. He spoke to me about Governor Askew. Askew was elected governor in 1970 and campaigned hard against Governor Claude Kirk, who was the first Republican elected governor in almost 100 years. I always heard that this was a difficult campaign. Dr. Harvey tells me if he agrees with this assessment.
6: Yeah, the, the Claude Kirk Askew campaign got fairly dirty, and I don't think it's one of the dirtiest in Florida history, but it, it, but it got nasty at, at certain times where uh, Kirk had called Askew a, a pretty little mama's boy, and, and Askew had said that Kirk had enjoyed being governor more than anyone he'd ever known, and it was bad for the state.
7: Governor Askew was known as a popular governor and a sunbelt governor because he came to office when the population of the state increased significantly. Yet, he was liked by a cross-section of the voting population. Florida
6: was becoming a little less southern, a little more northeastern with the the growth of retirement age and the growth of South Florida as a new population base. But in a lot of these public opinion polls, most people said that they may not agree with Askew's policies or his positions, but they trusted him. And that was the overwhelming factor in in him getting reelected overwhelmingly in 1974 and his popularity that remained high even to the day he died.
7: Askew served in the state legislature for a long time and was there during the pork chop gang years that epitomized rural lawmakers hostile to both civil rights and urban growth in Florida. I wondered how Askew fit into that political milieu.
6: He was technically in the pork chop land, if you want to call it that, but he wasn't a pork chopper in terms of taking advantage of sort of the overwhelming political power that they had. Askew ran... Even from the first time in office, on, on racial equality and, and fairness in politics, which is sort of contrary to what the pork choppers were standing on. And so, even though he got elected from Pork Chop Region, he really didn't believe or, or stand on um, uh, pork chop platform policies.
7: Dr. Harvey tells me how ASCII was different from previous governors.
6: Ending with Kirk and beginning in the 70s, you have a populace that's looking more for reforms. This is the decade of Watergate. People are distrusting uh, their government. They're distrusting national government. They don't trust uh, state government. And Askew comes in and says, listen, I trust you. You trust me. I'm never going to lie to you, but I'm going to speak the truth, even if it angers you. And so for his eight years in office, Askew was like this huge breath of fresh air where he would say what he believed to be right, even if it wasn't popular at the time, especially on busing. He came out for racial equality in schools. And, and said that busing was the only way, short of neighborhood desegregation, to, to give blacks and whites equal opportunity to schools. And even when he said things as unpopular as that, he still went up in popularity ratings among Florida voters. It was, it was remarkable.
7: Dr. Harvey describes Askew's achievements. Beginning in
6: 1970, the South elected a whole slate of what we call New South governors, who were elected by biracial coalitions, thanks to the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And Askew came into office. He actually ran on a populist campaign of making corporations pay their fair share of taxes. And once in office, he enacted that in his first year in office, a corporate profits tax, the fair share plan. The next year, he uh, he stood uh, for equality of school uh, access, with pushing busing. And next year after that, he passed one of the most transformational education reform policies in, in Florida history. And then the year after that, he, he made sure that Big Cypress Swamp, which was the feeder for the Biscayne Aquifer, was protected from development.
7: Dr. Harvey leaves us with the lasting legacy of Governor Reuben Askew. I
6: think you're going to find that Askew was, if not the greatest governor the state's ever had. He's in the top five for sure. And a few years ago, the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University ranked him in the top ten governors in American history, alongside of people like Teddy Roosevelt, Wilson, uh, La Follette, all the greats that we study in textbooks, um, Askew's ranked up next to them. The thing that makes Askew unique, even among his New South, fellow New South governors, is that he didn't care about enriching himself. He didn't care about his own personal sort of agenda. He wanted to do the right thing for the state of Florida. And one of the things that he said when he was elected is he wanted to leave office. So he could go down the street, walk down the street, hold his head high, and believe that he had kept the faith, he'd been truthful and honest and done the right thing to, uh, to his state and for his state.
7: And by all accounts, he did. That was Dr. Gordon Harvey, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join me, Ben DiBiase, John White, and the rest of the Florida Frontiers team Saturday, October 21st from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the second annual Florida Frontiers Festival at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. More information is at floridafrontiersfestival.com. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle.